Glad you guys are here today. Um, actually, this morning as we begin, and I'm sure many of you guys are sitting out there going, are they going to talk about it at some point? I, I did want to, this morning, spend a moment for us to uh, pray for the people of Japan. Um, you know, it's one of the things I'm thankful for about our church, I think, is that what Andy shared, and he's, he's a spot on. You know, the reality is for a lot of us, and I, I, I'm mainly speaking for myself, I'm sure, but a lot of us, whenever we hear these songs or these truths, especially in the Christian setting, it's so individualized. See, that's part of the reason I think why the words in a lot of the gospel songs, frankly, don't really resonate and connect with us because we're going, well, what does it mean about me? But the reality is, as, as, as Andy mentioned, when you think about God is able to do everything that he has promised to do, one of those things that should immediately go through your mind is, God, we look forward to the day when there will be no more earthquakes, when there will be no more tsunamis. Because your death and resurrection brought about redemption and healing, not just for me, but for all of creation. Amen? So that song, as you're singing it, man, it, you should declare it with, with conviction and faith to say, God, we look forward to that day, even as you are at work today. It's a powerful, powerful reminder this morning that God is able to do. And when we wonder, God, not just me and my own little life, but what I see around me in our city, in our country, around the world, can you really, God, bring about redemption, healing, and restoration? Or will free of evil, injustice, and sin? And the answer that we are heading towards in Easter is an emphatic yes. Yes. So, God, we do pray right now for the people of Japan and the country. And, God, in a country in which a tiny percentage of people claim to believe you as Lord and Savior, we also pray, God, not just for physical restoration, but also spiritual restoration and spiritual healing. That somehow, God, as you are able to bring out out of tragedy and out of suffering, redemption, forgiveness, salvation, as the cross and the empty tomb declare to us that you would do a powerful work in that nation. God, may our, not only our hearts and our prayers go out to the people of Japan, but also, God, somehow you would call some of us to open up our wallets and our lives to generously give and sacrifice of ourselves, God, on behalf of our neighbors, because they are our neighbors. So we pray for that country, for that nation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are entering into, you guys, the season of Lent. Uh, confession, I, you know, I, I really don't like the season of Lent. I'll I, I tell you why. <laughs> you're going, you're a pastor though. I know. The reason I don't like season of Lent is as my Facebooks are, you know, I want to shut Facebook down, but I'm not. And I'll tell you why. And I read Facebook statuses and it's just, oh, I'm giving up TV. I'm giving up coffee. I'm giving up Facebook. Well, thank God you're giving up Facebook, right? I mean, I mean honestly, can I just, 
like the things that people ask me, give up for Lent, it's just kind of like, anybody else know what I'm talking, you know what I mean? I give up coffee, you know, for Lent. I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to, but I, you know, I, I, I give up coffee. And here's me, you know, I, I give up coffee and I get irritated. I get irritated at people that drink coffee. You know, I give dirty looks in coffee shops because that's where I work, Right? I look forward to Easter so that I could drink coffee afterwards. Some of us give up TV, but really, really, you know? I mean, we TiVo the stupid shows and we watch it after anyway, right? There's a number of ways I could, but the reality is like when we talk about Lent and stuff that we give up, more than anything else, it just seems so individualistic to me. Does anybody else relate? It's just so about me. And it just feeds into, like, we're not self-centered enough. You know, it's like, it's about me and what I'm giving up, so on and so forth. And, 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 you know, a friend of mine said this. He said, if I had the choice between giving up coffee and my entire life, I will give up coffee every time. And for me, when I think about the season of Lent, what I want to challenge you with and what I want to challenge myself with as we go through the season is instead of just asking, you know, what can I give up? Is there something that I could give up? What would it be like to ask the question, not just give up something, but what would it be like for me to pour out my entire life for something, for someone? You with me? What would it be like during the season of Lent? Because after all, when we think about the death and resurrection of Christ, he didn't just, as I mentioned earlier, earn personal individual salvation to get our butts into heaven. What he, what he accomplished was cosmic salvation for the whole world. So this Lent focus isn't just about me and, oh, I'm giving up coffee so I can be closer to Jesus or I'm giving up TV so I can focus. Like for us to ask the question of what would it be like for me to pour out my entire life for the kingdom? And what are the causes and issues that I could partner with Christ in terms of addressing? What would it be like for us not just to seek peace for my own personal self, but peace for the whole world and justice? We're entering into a sermon series called Generous Justice for the next four weeks. And yeah, we're going to talk about money, finance, and stewardship, all that stuff, because we normally do during this time of the year. But the focus so much this year isn't going to be on me and what does it mean for me, although we're going to cover some of that. But really, when you look at the Bible, you guys, we will be shocked at the fact that the Bible over and over again says that generosity with your finances and resources is part of doing justice. Justice isn't just working to right wrongs or having social concern as we talked about for four weeks through Luke 10. But justice is about radical generosity to those in need. Are you tracking so far? Generous justice. And I'll tell you why this is important. Every single study out there says that amongst youth, young adults, high, you know, college, so on and so forth, volunteering in issues of justice is way up. But here's the problem. People that are heavily involved in justice and spending time and energy, their spending habits are no different from those who are rarely involved. Their lifestyle is no different 
from those who don't volunteer and give of their. In other words, volunteerism is almost like another compartmentalized part of my life where I go, well, that's a good thing that I do, but it doesn't have ramifications for all of my life. Does that make sense? See, that's us. That's me. Maybe you're one of those people out there going, no, me living a life committed to justice is not just spending my time ministering to the homeless and the poorest of the poor, but man, that reflects where I go eat, how much I spend on myself, and how I live my life. There's an incongruence there amongst our generation, not you, Dan, but amongst our generation of young folk. And we want to change that. Generous, just. Unless you're living in a cave, have you noticed that we're living in a time of some severe, desperate socioeconomic times? I mean, I saw 60 Minutes piece this week on child homelessness in America. 1.5 million children become homeless every year. One in every 50 child in America is homeless. We live in a time of extreme social conditions. But here's the powerful thing. You ready? Throughout history, do you know that when the social conditions were the most dire, the gospel of Jesus Christ had that much more powerful effect? That when men and women lived out their lives driven by their faith, men and women of generosity, of justice, when, when they lived out their lives in accordance with what Jesus taught and Jesus said, the society took notice and revivals broke out all over the place. In the fourth century, Julian, Roman emperor, wanted to revive paganism and get rid of Christianity. So he built these elaborate, beautiful temples and instituted worship services. But Christianity won the Roman Empire, not because they had better services, not because they had more beautiful buildings, but because of the beauty of their lives. In a culture in which people were very, very promiscuous with their bodies and stingy with their money, Christians were incredibly promiscuous with their money and stingy with their bodies. And they won over their empire. Why are we not turning our culture upside down? Why is our culture not taking notice of our lives as followers of Jesus. Anybody, anybody want to be a part of transforming not just our church, but our city for the gospel of Jesus? Anybody? Is this exciting? Anybody? I, I hope so. I hope that's why you're here. Because you want to be part of a movement of God that will transform our culture and our society for Jesus. Amen? Can I get an Amen. Yeah, yeah, that's why we're here. And that's why we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. All right? Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, everybody, before you turn your Bibles, I forgot. I forgot an incredibly important thing. Sorry, sorry, sorry. In my hand, in my hand, in my hand. So, 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 to help all of us as a church go on this journey for the next, you know, 30, 40 days of Lent. A close friend of mine that works for an organization called Youth with a Mission wrote this 30-day prayer and action guide called Steps of Justice. And he did literally like a year's worth of research about the various issues and causes that affect the entire world. And he has separated into 30 days. And in 30 days, you learn about sex trafficking, 
poverty, water, AIDS, all over the world. And 30 day bites, you, you learn about an issue, a scripture passage that goes along with how you can begin to learn, prayerfully uh, reflect on that, and then a prayer guide where you could pray specifically for it, and then an action step. We're selling these downstairs for $4.50, $4.50. That's one venti latte. Hello, anybody? If you're going, what's a venti latte? You're in a good place, okay? You're going, what's that? Starbucks, what's that? You are a wonderful Christian. Let me just tell you, okay? But for the rest, rest of us pagans, okay? Rest of us pagans for whom like a venti latte? Are you kidding me? 450. Now, here's the thing. There are people in our church, you guys know this about our church, who literally can't afford it. Right? To me, that's the beauty of our church. So here's what I want you to do. A, if you have money to buy it, buy more than one. Meaning, if there's specific people you could think of, buy more than one, give it to them. Also, if you don't have specific people you can support, buy more than one and just say, if anybody needs one for free, I'm paying for their share. Okay? So it's downstairs. We ordered 250 of these. Okay? So first come, first serve. So steps for justice. And I want all of us as a church to go through it. And I believe that we will come out on the other side of transform. Okay? All right. Yes. 350? Michael says 350. Michael has given us a discount. Holy cow. Wow. You going to pick up the other dollar? All right, Michael. All right, Michael don't need to hear this sermon on radical generosity because he gets it. Okay, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Oh, today is going to be, you guys, again, broad view, broad themes. Themes that we're going to hit on. These principles could be sermons in and of themselves. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and hit on these broad themes, mainly principles today. If you're sitting there going application, what does it mean, application? That's what we're going to spend the next three weeks on. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Here we go. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Verse 7. When he noticed, that's Jesus, how the guests, were, uh, guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told him this parable. When somebody invites you to a wedding feast, don't, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, hey, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Now, guys, that is a cosmic truth that we're going to cover, but it's just practical too. You know what he's saying? Jesus is saying, don't toot your own horns. Don't be the type of person that brags about yourself and toot your own horn. Nobody likes you. <laughs> is that like news to you? He's just saying, don't, don't be one of those people that kind of props yourself up. Let somebody else do it. That's what he's saying. Common sense, practical wisdom. But there's a cosmic truth there too, which we're going to see. Verse 11. For all... Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Wow. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they'll invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table heard him heard this, he's one of those guys that likes to brag about himself, you know. He said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, okay, 
A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent the servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready. But they all began to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field, and I got to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, and I can't come. The servants came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, then go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in. Compel them, strong Greek word, persuade them, debate with them, argue with them to come on in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited get a taste of my banquet. Jesus, in this parable, it's a little cryptic like he does sometimes. He gives an astonishing standard, you guys, for sacrificial giving here, okay? It's going to seem unreasonable. I'm going to lay out the principle. You're going to go, that's unreasonable. But we'll also see at the end why it is absolutely reasonable for anybody who understands the logic of the gospel, okay? So, First, see the amazing stand in the middle of this passage. Now, you got to understand the context, okay? The context is a Greco-Roman world. In a Greco-Roman world, these dinners or these banquets, okay, were sort of the highlight of, of, of the community, okay? And in these banquets, you had somebody who was a patron type. What is a patron type? In this world, things worked on a patronage system. In other words, there was a prominent individual in a community, okay? And he was sort of the patron. And if you wanted to get anything done, you had to get the patron's favor. Once you got the patron to do a favor for you, he gave you loans and generally just opened doors for you to be able to do stuff. Now, so as a patron, as a patron, you would invite these people to come over to your house, okay? And they would sort of owe you something, okay? Because you would do a favor for them, and that would enable them to sort of maintain their status in life or move up. Patronage system. This host is one of these patron types. And Jesus has audacity to look at this patron type host and says, when you throw one of these things, don't invite your friends, your family, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, but invite the poor, the crippled. And the lame. To which the guy's thinking two things. He's going, why would I not want to invite my friends, neighbors, and relatives? That's the whole point of these things, right? I do these things so that people will owe me favors and that I can get things done. That's the whole point. And Jesus says, no, when you do these things, invite the crippled, the lame, the poor, the people that have no chance of repaying you. What's he saying? These dinners were important in terms of who came Because it was a way for these people to maintain their status in life. It's more than just a social occasion. This is where you went and you built up a network of people and you moved up in the social ladder. You maintained your social status, which was an incredibly important thing. And it was incredibly expensive. But the thing is, these parties paid for themselves. Do you see how? You invite the people, pay all this money to throw the banquet. They walk out going, okay, we owe you. Yep, you owe me. And next time? That was the whole point of these banquets. And here's the powerful thing that Jesus lays out here. What is the implication of what Jesus is saying when he says, when you invite the poor, the crippled, and the lame, instead of inviting rich friends, if you read it literally, you're sitting there going, I can't throw parties and invite my friends, my relatives. It's an idiom. You know what an idiom is? 
an idiom is an expression that makes sense in a certain cultural context and language, but outside it doesn't. I'm fond of saying that I came to this country when I was 10 years old. So one of the things that's really, and I'm all serious, one of the things that I have a hard time learning were idioms. I remember the first time, first time I heard somebody say, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I literally said, what? <laughs> Idiom. She bit the dust. Idiom. Get out of my hair. Idioms don't make sense in certain cultural contexts that make sense to us, right? He bit the bullet, etc. I think those are some like. When Jesus says, don't invite your friends, invite the poor, idiom. Here's another example of an idiom right in that text. Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Idiom. Idiomatic expression. Jesus is not saying, don't forget about, forget about the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments is being honor your father and mother. He's saying, what is he saying? He's saying, love me. Massively more, far more, way more. So much so that your love for me, when you compare it to your love for your family, your parents, it would seem like hatred, idiomatic expression. Why is that important? When Jesus says, apply this, when Jesus says, when you throw parties, you know, and invite your rich friends and neighbors and family, don't do that. What Jesus is saying in that context is don't do the necessary things to maintain your sort of status in your culture and move up. Today, it would be like Jesus saying to you, don't ever go on vacations. Don't ever do recreation. Don't ever spend your money going to the movies. Don't spend money on clothes and shoes. Idiom. Is that what Jesus is saying? That's not what he's saying. When he says, when you throw a party, don't invite your family, friends, maintaining his status, but rather invite those people, what Jesus is saying is this. You're giving to ministry in which people are spiritually helped. And you're giving to charity in which people are physically helped out of it way more, massively more than the money you spend on recreation, entertainment, clothes, maintaining your lifestyle. Let me break it down even more, shall we? Jesus is giving a biblical perspective on giving, and he's talking about a priority and the sacrificial nature of it. First priority. Hate your father and mother. Love me. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the priority. If you have to choose between me and your parents, choose me. Here it is in a principle, biblical Principle of giving. Boom. Your giving to ministry and charity needs to be a necessity. And the money that you spend on yourself needs to be optional. Does it feel like a whiplash to anybody? The Bible's perspective on giving. Some of you are going, well, I thought it said to tithe and give 10%. I'm done. Bible says biblical giving is approached from the perspective of priority. Priority says the money that you give to do ministry where people are spiritually helped and to do charity where people are physically helped is the necessity, non-negotiable, the priority. And the money they spend on yourself, that's optional. 
To which many of us go, I have got life goals. I've got financial goals. I've got money that I want to save. I have money that I want to spend on that, this, that. And Jesus says, a kingdom person says, here's necessity, here's optional. Optional is if I have money to do all these things and then some I give. Jesus says, kingdom, swish them. Switch them. So I've got Carl here nodding his head, going, Amen. Sue. I heard this story about an old British farmer who owned a bunch of livestock. Okay? And one of his cows became pregnant. And he was very happy because he has enough livestock to feed the family, all this stuff. To his surprise, he found out the cow wasn't just pregnant, but the cow was pregnant with twins, two calves. So with an incredible spirit of generosity, he went to his wife and said, Honey, the Lord has incredibly blessed us with two calves, with two beautiful calves. And what I'm going to do since we have enough is we're going to sell, sell the two calves and give half the proceeds to the church and to the Lord's work. To which she said, That's very generous of you. A few weeks passed by. He walks into the house. He said, Look on his face. He says, Honey, what's wrong? He says, The Lord's calf died. The Lord's calf got sickly and died. Mine, healthy, strong. The Lord's calf died. To which the wife said, I didn't realize we had designated one of them to the Lord and one of them to us. The point of the parable story is stupid, but it's simple. You know what? For us, it's always the Lord's calf that dies. It's always the Lord's calf that dies. I got money, I need to go on vacation. I got money, I need to buy clothes. I got money, I want to spend on that. I got money, I want to do those things. And if I have leftover, well, the Lord gets that. Bible says, say it with me, switch them. The Lord's calf, Michael, died. It's always the Lord's calf that dies. Can I get an amen? It's true, isn't it? Come on. I mean, how many of us? Oh, okay. Well, I got to go. I got to keep going. Okay. Not only priority, not only, come on. We live in a culture. This is so foreign to us. I mean, some of you are sitting here. I'm serious. It's like a spiritual whiplash. You're going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Giving to God and his work is a necessity? What? And my life and what I spend is optional? Not only priority, but sacrificial. Okay, sacrificial. If you're taking notes. Biblical giving, sacrificial. In the Old Testament, the standard for giving is very clear, right? You gave 10%. And 10% of the Old Testament was you give to the tabernacle. And it was divided among some of it went to go support the priests who served the tabernacle. Some of the 10% went to help the most needy and the poor. And some of the 10% went to keep the observance, worship observances. But in the Old Testament, 10% clearly it out. But the thing is, in the New Testament, you look all over Scripture, there's only one time where Jesus talks about the tithe. One time. One time. And it's found in Luke uh, chapter, uh, where is it? Luke chapter 11, verse 42, 43. We're not going to look at that. And what's clear is that Jesus isn't against the tithe because he says in Luke chapter, it's absolutely right to tithe, right? But when you look at the New Testament, you guys, and hopefully the first principle sort of sets you up for this. When you look at the New Testament, here's the standard of giving. Here's the standard of giving that the New Testament says. 
Second Corinthians chapter eight. In Second Corinthians chapter eight, Paul is going around different churches that he planted to collect money to help Christians in Jerusalem because they're going through severe famine and are in tremendous need. And he's writing to a church in Corinth, and he's saying to them, I want to remind you of how the church in Macedonia gave. And this is what he says. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. When Paul says that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, he's not saying that they gave more than they had. He's not saying that they went into debt because they wanted to give to ministry. What he's saying is that they're giving genuinely and truly hurt. It's sacrificial. The example of Macedonians illustrates what the Bible teaches about proportional giving. Can I just be straight up with us? For many of us, giving 10% to ministry and to charity hardly affects how we live. And again, Carl is the only one that's just kind of nodding over there. Is this true of anybody else? And did you know, though, that there are people in our church, for them to give only 2 to 3% of their income to ministry and to charity means that they go without things that many of you and I would consider basic. It's basic things. I don't know why Christians are so fixed on this tithing, tithing. Like if we tithe, it's like spiritual. Jesus says, I give you a new standard. You give until it hurts. So for those of us that are giving 10% or whatever, I mean, can I just be honest with you? You know, my wife and I look at each other all the time and we go, Jenny, we, we could do so much more. I mean, we still go out to eat at all the places I still want to go out. I still get to do all the vacations I want to do. I, I mean, we still get to do it. We, we, there's more that we can do. Because as a pastor, again, I know that there are people in our church, man, and what sacrificial giving for them is like, I, I still remember one day, you know, last year when we preached on it, on a similar principle, a homeless guy walked in and he literally reached into his pocket and took out all the coins. That's all the money he literally had. And he said, here. And it was a visual for me to go, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for those of us who maintain all the things that we want to do and then say, if I've got room, I want to give. Immediately, you know, every time I talk about this, people go, but so does it mean that Christians can't live in wealthier neighborhoods? Let me say this again and again and again, because there are wealthy folks in our church. We need Christians everywhere, in every sphere, and you need to interact with people in that sphere of influence and be a Christ follower. But here's how your life could be a shining example of the beauty of the gospel. In those circles that you hang out at where you're constantly pressured to live to a certain standard, A Christian in that living standard always aims for the bottom. Always aims for the bottom. Okay? People ask, what does it mean to live simply? Here's here's my own definition of what it means to live simply. It's not a number. Live simply means this. To live simply means that the more you make and move up, the greater the distance is between the way you could live and the way you do live.
Some of you guys know this. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have huge, like, temptations of, like, material things, you know. But one of the things that when I get an opportunity, I get really jealous of people with nice cars. My brother is one of those guys for whom, like, status is, like, the cars that he drives, you know, my younger brother. Parker and I visited him in L.A. last year. And it's like, he has, it's like we play this guessing game. Wonder what car Uncle Tim's driving now. Right, so we met him at the parking lot, in and out, and the 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 the, the boy drives up in a four door silver Mercedes. I've never been inside of a Mercedes. You know what I'm saying? Like I've never even been inside one, let alone drive it. You know? And wherever and my brother goes, do you want to do you want to drive it? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I got in, and I, I kid you not, it smelled better. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's snub. I said this last year. You know what my car smells like? My car smells like family. You know what family smell is like? Okay? My car smells like family. It smells like family. You walk in like, what's that smell? Oh, it smells like family. Oh, french fries. You know, like, like there's stuff. I was like, oh, my gosh. It smells more expensive. <laughs> I was really jealous. Living simply means maybe some people could afford it, but you say, there's a way that I could live, but here's how I actually do live. Because I follow Jesus. Does that make sense? I've told you guys this story before about John Wesley. Some of you, just read up on his, his little teaching. John Wesley, 18th century, founder of Methodist Church phenomenal pastor evangelist. I didn't know this until I, did, I was preparing for this, you know. John Wesley grew up, grew up in grinding poverty. One of nine kids, his father was a pastor, an Anglican priest. And he pastored one of the lowest paying parishes in all of England. Matter of fact, John Wesley recalls one time when his father was being dragged away for unable to pay his debt. John Wesley, however, did much better for himself. Made a ton of money in ministry, right? He made a ton of money. And, and he wrote this in his own personal testimony. In 1973, he began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. In the first year, his income was 30 pounds. And he found he could live on 28, which was a very comfortable sum for a single man. So he gave away two. Second year, his income doubled, but his expenses stayed even at 28 pounds. So he had 32 pounds to give away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds. In his life, his income advanced to I has 1,400 pounds a year. 1,400 pounds, a lot of money at that time. But he barely let his expenses rise above 28 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his position at the same time. When he died in 1791 at the age of 87, people said that the only money that was left and mentioned in his will was the coins to be found in his pockets and dresser. Most of the 30,000 pounds he earned in his entire life had been given away. And then he wrote this. If I leave behind 10 pounds, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I died a thief and a robber. Does this sound extreme to you? Does this sound like, that's extreme. That's, that's unreasonable. Not if you understand the gospel. So three ways, this parable, this, this passage, three ways that Jesus helps us to see that this kind of generosity 
generosity of our money, of our possessions, is absolutely reasonable. There are three dialogues in this passage, seven verses 7 to 11, and then second one in the middle, and then third one with this, this very arrogant Pharisee. And these three dialogues that Jesus has, each of them points to gospel motivation for why this kind of giving is not unreasonable. Verses 7 to 11, verses 7 to 11, Jesus says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, okay? Jesus in here, right here, articulates the essence of what the gospel is, okay? The essence of the gospel right here in this verse and the essence of the gospel is this if you go to god and you say i deserve acceptance jesus says then you'll get rejection because you don't know what's in your heart but if you go to god and say i deserve rejection forgive me jesus says then you'll get acceptance Religion says, I go to God and say, I deserve acceptance. Look at all the good deeds that I do for you. The gospel says I go to God and say, I don't deserve acceptance, I deserve rejection. Then you'll be received. The gospel is if you humble yourself, in other words, you take the lower seat with God. Then God will exalt you. Are you tracking with me? You see the imagery? You see the imagery? That's what the gospel is. He humbles himself, takes the lower seat with God. I'm not worthy of acceptance. Then the gospel says, then you become worthy. You go to Jesus and you say, I can see. Then Jesus says, you're blind. You go to God and say, I'm all right. God says, you're condemned. Take the lower seat and God will exalt you. Now, that's the gospel. What does the gospel do? Jesus says, then God will exalt you. Now, I don't know what you have in your mind in terms of exalt, but here's what that word literally means. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 12, verse 43, you, he's talking to Pharisees, you love human praise more than the praise of God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying to the Pharisees, here's what fills your heart with delight. Is what people go on. Here's what fills your heart, gave you identity, gave you significance, gave you joy, gave you a sense of worth. Is what people say, what people do. Jesus says this, when you go to God, take the Lord's seat and you say, I'm not worthy of acceptance. And God says, I will lift you up, exalt you. That is, God will then fill your heart with delight of his praise. Delight of his significance, your identity, your worth. Your heart will be filled with the praise of God and delight of God. Now, what does that do? It creates inner wealth. It creates inner wealth that gives you a different perspective about your external wealth. You following me? It gives you inner wealth for a Christian who understands the gospel that even though you were, you were worthy of condemnation, God accepted you and Christ exalted you. When that happens and your heart was filled with the praise of God, you walk around and you go, I'm rich. I have gifts beyond measure. My father, my heavenly father embraces me and has lifted me and filled my heart with his praise. And money just becomes money, not significance, not your worth, not your identity, not the things that make you feel more important. Listen, if money is more than money, and money is what gives you, look, I make a lot of money, I'm important. Money enables you to buy nice clothes. Look, I'm attractive, that's what gives me identity. Money, I save up a lot, now I'm secure. If money is not just money and security, self-worth, identity, you lack inner wealth that the gospel comes that enables you to be free. Can I get an amen? John Martin Luther said this, a Christian is somebody who gets up every morning and says, I have wealth. You lived the life I should have lived. You died the death I should have died. You know what that means? You took everything I deserved, and now I get everything you deserve. 
You have a sense of inner wealth. No, it also gives you security. My security is not my bank account. My security is not what I find. My security is the fact that I'm a beloved of God. My security is the fact that there's nothing that's going to separate me from the love of God. My security is the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And eventually he will overwhelm all weakness, all sin, and all frailty. And death, I'm not afraid of death before the gospel. Death is an executioner. But now death just a gardener resurrection if you don't have inner wealth money will always be more than just the money and it's going to sound silly to go what giving necessity can i just tell you something for those of you that are sitting here going I picked the worst Sunday to come, man, because the preacher talking about money. No, I'm, no, no, I'm not talking. Listen, there are people who don't like going to church. Because Let me just tell you something. Have you noticed so far, I have not one time mentioned I need you to give to our church. Not once. And I'm not going to because it's not about that. Matter of fact, if you think that Jesus, in the Bible, New Testament, Jesus only asked for money once. And he gave it back. He was teaching and said, anybody have a coin? Anybody have a coin? Coin, coin. He said, who does this money belong to? Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Here, have your money back. Jesus never asked people for money. You know why? Because he knew that the fundamental issue is your heart, not your money. It's your heart. It's my heart. If you don't have inner wealth, I am telling you right now, money will always be more than money. Some of y'all loving it, and some of y'all hating it. That's okay. Second gospel motivation. Verse 14, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is so good. This is so good. This is so powerful. Because here's the problem with living the light, way the light, that Jesus says we should. He says you should be pouring out yourself for people. You should be laying out your life in sacrificial giving. You should be going out of your way for those who are in need. You should be giving of your time, effort, and you should be absolutely expending yourself on behalf of others. But the problem with that is when we do, let's be honest, we feel like I'm missing out. Don't we? Well, if I give that much, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss out going there. If I give that much, I'm, I'm going to miss out on doing that. If I, if I do that, I'm going to miss out on all these things that I could possibly enjoy. And Jesus says, you're not going to miss out. You know why? He says, because of the resurrection. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Here's the beautiful thing about what Jesus says in the Gospels. Jesus says, every other religion, right, perceives salvation as an escape from this material world. Every other religion is a salvation. And a lot of Christians sometimes think this too, actually, is that salvation is your soul. Go somewhere. For all of eternity in this ethereal, immaterial world existence floating around. But the heart of the gospel says the future is not the ethereal. The future is a material resurrection. To help us get our ideas around that, Jesus said the future is a feast. The future. Imagine a banquet, a feast. What do you see? What do you see? Bam. 
This is me dancing, okay? You see dancing, right? This is me dancing, okay? There's dancing. It's a feast. There's dancing. There's joy. There's food. There's all kinds of stuff. Does this sound like an immaterial world? No. Jesus says your future is a material world. It's going to be a feast. A feast. And you remember Jesus' resurrected body? He rises. He eats fish. People could touch him. N.T. Wright, a famous uh, scholar, theologian, says this. Jesus' resurrection body was a transphysical body. In other words, it wasn't less physical. Many of us think that it was more physical. What does it mean it was more physical? C.S. Lewis says, he says, right now, how many senses do people have, human beings? Typically, you have like four or five senses, right? I could smell, I could hear, I could see, I could eat, I could feel. Five senses. See, as Lewis said, at the resurrection, check this out, we may have a thousand senses. This is all of my ten fingers sensing stuff. You know what I mean? Does it it get anybody excited? He said, your life now compared to what you will be is your life right now compared to a tomato. Resurrection. Do you know? Do you know why? Do you know why you and I, listen, do you know why we're afraid of suffering? Do you know why we're afraid to give our lives? Do you know why we're afraid to expend our lives? Because we think this life is the only life we'll have. We think this money is the only money we'll have. You and I think that this is all there is. And Jesus says, what awaits you is a feast for crying out loud. Don't be afraid to give. Don't be afraid to take risks. What's awaiting you is a feast. You're not going to miss out on anything. Oh, man. Michael, Easter's coming early this year, bro. Joni Erickson Tata. I got to tell you, Joni Erickson Tata, a woman who became a quadriplegic, bound to wheelchair, since she was like 16 years old in a diving accident, has written amazing Christian books, has said amazing things about suffering, amazing things about hardship. She has touched millions of lives. Did you know that she said this? quadriplegic, 40-some-plus years bound to wheelchair. Listen to what she said. She said, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing that I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then, hold on, and then, and then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance. Quadriplegic for 50 years. I'm going to dance. I'm going to dance. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives somebody whose spinal cord was injured like me? Can you imagine the hope that this gives someone who has manic depression, no religion, no other philosophy other than biblical faith, promises us new bodies and not just renewed minds and hearts? Only in the gospel of Jesus do people find such hope in hurting people like me and live today. I'm giving that money. I'm going to miss out. Jesus says, a feast. You're not missing out. What about my time? I'm going to, a feast. You're not missing out. Is this good news? This is the reason why the early believers won over the Roman Empire. They feared neither death, nor poverty, nor persecution. Why? Oh, Because someday my soul's going to go to heaven. Heck no. Someday I'm going to dance. Someday I'm going to eat. I'm going to get the life back. The gospel of Jesus. Would this make you less afraid to give? 
Not quite yet. I know, I know, I know. So here we go. We're going to, the third and the last. Gospel motivation is the sacrifice of Jesus that was required for you to get into the feast. The third motivation is the sacrifice of Jesus that was required for you to get into the feast. And literally, I mean, this parable that Jesus says in verses 16 to 24 could be one entire sermon, okay? And you guys know how I am. So I'm not going to do that, right? I need, to, I need to narrow it down. I need to narrow it down. Jesus in verses 16 to 24 is essentially responding to a very smug guest at the banquet who hears him talking to the host, right? And he says, oh, the feast of kingdom, yeah, yeah, blessed is the one, meaning me, who will make it into the kingdom. And Jesus goes, you smug, arrogant Pharisee. So let me tell you a parable. And in this parable, Jesus says there was a great patron type, you know, like that guy right there, right? He's, he threw a mega feast. The Greek word literally is mega. A huge feast. And he invited people that are of his class, of his social standing, the inviters. And all of them say no. All of them in his class say, no, I'm too busy. No, I just got married. I got business deals. And so what does the master of this banquet say? He then says to the servants, then I want you to go out and I want you to round up everybody who doesn't qualify to be here. I want you to round up everybody who doesn't deserve to be here. You hear what I'm saying? The, the servants go out. And first they go to the urban port. You notice the streets and the alleys. And he brings them in. He says to the master, there's still room. There's still room. And the master says, then go out to the country. The rural poor. In other words, he's saying, go out to the most desperate, the most poor, and the most despondent, and invite them to come in. And then he says this. He says, but you know what, servants? You're going to have to compel them. You're going to have to argue with them. You're going to have to debate with them. Why? Why? Jesus says, they're not going to believe the good news. What is the good news? The feast. Jesus says, all is ready. You tracking? All is ready. It's a full, finished salvation. It's a feast. It's not a potluck dinner. Potluck dinner, you what? You bring something, right? Jesus says, it's not a potluck dinner. You don't bring anything. It's a feast and all is ready. Just come. And like you, you're sitting there going, what? I don't believe it. It's too good to be true. Jesus says, that's why you're going to have to argue with them. You have to debate with them. You're going to have to say, it's true. It's true. Me invited you. I don't have to bring up nothing. Just come. Just come. It's too good to be true. Just come. It's a full finished salvation. Why is it that we can do that? Verse 24. I tell you, not one of those who were invited We'll get a taste of my banquet. You know what this is pointing to? This is pointing to Jesus. Feast. Michael, I'm getting so hungry right now. I'm about to go out and get some Texas to Brazil or some Brazilian steakhouse after this. All talking about food and feast is getting me real. What's that? What's that? Work with the image. I know. I just, this big old, big old. So here's a feast, right? Here's a feast. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, there are people on the outside. Who are the people on the outside of the feast? Too proud to come. Too proud to come. There are people inside the feast. Who are the inside feast? The humble. The ones that have taken the lower seat with God. Jesus says, it is those who humble themselves that the invitation is open and free and you can come in. Now, here's the thing. So many of us maybe sit there and go, oh, so it's humility that gets you in. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not humility that gets you in. It's what Jesus did on the cross. What did Jesus do on the cross? Listen very carefully. Carlton, you come up. 
In Matthew chapter 25, God tells a parable about two stories, two parables about the end times. And one of them, the master, the Lord, says to those people, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the feast and share in the joy of my master. Another parable, Jesus says, depart from me. You cursed into eternal fire, for I never knew you. To one group, he says, come in and enjoy the feast of the lamb. To another group, he says, depart from me. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus lived a perfect life. He obeyed God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus loved his neighbors. He lived a perfect life. And he should have heard the master, God the Father, say to him, come in, well done, good and faithful servant. But what did Jesus hear on the cross? Jesus heard. And you know what? He heard this because of he saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus hearing on the cross? Jesus is hearing from his father, depart from me. You cursed into everlasting fire. Why? Does the one who deserves to be hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, here, depart from me because you and I deserve to hear, depart from me. But because of Jesus, what do we hear? Come in. See, I know this doesn't strike some of us. I mean, I hear, you hear it every week. I hammer away at it. You're like, nah. That's why we live for this world. That's why money is more than money. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, church, comes and says, because Jesus himself heard on your behalf, my behalf, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire and all of our sins. He took when you and I just humble ourselves, take the lower seat with God and say, God, I don't deserve it. He says, no, you don't. But you know what? My son earns your acceptance. Come on in and enjoy the feast of my heavenly father. This is why here's where we're going, you guys, for the next three weeks, you know. I'm not, I'm not going to be up here going, so pull out your calculator. And, all, and we're going to do a budgeting class for you to figure out what all this means. But the Bible doesn't say pull out a calculator. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says pull out a cross. Put it right there and just sit and meditate on the cross and the sacrifice and the generosity of Jesus, who though he was rich, became poor so that you and I in our poverty might become rich. I need to say two things and then I'm done. Number one, for those of you that are sitting here today who are out of job, don't make a lot of money, so on and so forth, chances are some of you are sitting here absolutely feeling a sense of I am worthless, I have failed as a parent, I have all these things because the reality is our culture bombards us with messages that says, have you achieved? Have you achieved? What have you not achieved? What have you not done? That's the message our me- bombards us with. So there are many women sitting here going, my worth, my identity is determined by external forces. And I want you to know that the gospel says your identity is not determined by external forces. It's determined by Jesus. Your identity and your worth and what God thinks about you, child of God. He loves you unconditionally. He has given of his entire life for you. You are of worth and value. You are treasured by your heavenly father. Secondly, for those of you who don't know Jesus, 
And I was going to do an invitation for those to commit to Jesus today. But because of time, we're going to do this in the upcoming weeks. And I want you to hear this from me. I want you to hear this from me. If you're not a Christian, you're sitting here this morning. I want you to know that it's a full salvation that God has accomplished for you. And he simply invites you to come. And you might be one of those people that says, I've got these excuses. Married. I've got business deals. I'm busy. And Jesus says, there is a urgency to my invitation. Accept it. Come on. Accept it. Accept it. It's free, you know. Why is it free? Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And we humbly come before God, take the lower seat, not the high, lower seat, and say, God, I'm not worthy of your acceptance. And God says, I know. That's why my son died and rose again on your behalf. And when you put your trust in me, a great exchange takes place where you get his righteousness, you get his forgiveness, you get his holiness, you get his wealth, and he takes upon your curse and the punishment you deserve. Religion says you earn a good record. You come to God and say, here, God, look at all I've done. The gospel says Jesus Christ has earned the perfect record on your behalf, and he gives it to you and me. And when he looks at you and me today, he doesn't see us as we ought to be. He doesn't see us as we should be. He sees us just like he sees his son. good to be true I know I know generous justice generous justice bow your heads with me church before Andy and the worship team lead us out you guys in this final sort of response I want to give you a moment I want to give you a moment the reality is our church we have people all over the spectrum in terms of how they're doing financially we have men and women who are out of jobs or barely scraping by and then we have men and women who are on the other opposite end doing wonderfully well and there's no cut and dry cookie cutter way of what the Bible says about what you ought to do. The Bible simply says, sit down with the cross, think on him who gave his all for you and enable that truth to speak to you personally about what you ought to do as a response. So you just in the quietness of your heart, just say, Holy Spirit, will you speak to me? Holy Spirit, will you speak to me? Holy Spirit, will you speak to me? Speak to me. 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 Holy Spirit, speak to me. Speak to me. What am I afraid of? What am I afraid to give up? What is my identity? What is my significance? What is my money wrapped up in? What am I finding true wealth in? What am I finding my identity, my significance? What, what am I finding that in? Speak to me, God. Show me. Speak to me. Am I afraid that I'm going to miss out on this life? A culture that bombards me to say this life is the only life that you have. 
enjoy it to the fullest, enjoy it to the full tilt? Do we need to have the Spirit speak to us and say, it's not the only life you're going to have. It's not the only money you're going to have. It's not the only thing you're going to have. Speak to me. Resurrection. There's resurrection. There's resurrection. There is resurrection. Speak to me. Show me your ways. Speak to me. And lastly, for those of us that are struggling and have a hard time trusting God, that he would be faithful in providing Speak to me, Lord. Look to him who did not spare his son, but gave him for us. How would he not, with all things, provide what we need? Trust. Speak to me, Lord. Speak to me. I give myself, I give myself to you. God, we begin this journey, and I know we have a hard time living that truth out, but our prayer is that it would be so. Our prayer is that it would be so. That this journey would be a constant reminder your call is not just to drop off a check in an offering bag or to give a bit here and there to charity. Your call is to say, my life is not my own. To you, totally and completely, I belong. I give myself. I give myself. As you leave this place, kingdom people, sons and daughters of God, know that he smiles upon you. He delights at the sight of you. He rejoices in your salvation. He loves you unconditionally and has given everything for you. Leave this place with that assurance and that security and that wealth that nothing, no one could ever take away. He is for you. He is for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.